and you're listening to Unusual Sources here on 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton, Ontario at 93.3 on the FM dial and the rest of the world on our online streaming service at cfmu.mcmaster.ca, soon to be upgraded, so check out our website. But I'm very pleased right now to mention that we'll be opening the year once again, I believe, with Eva Bartlett. And of course, many of our listeners are familiar with Eva. Uh, she's an Ontario-based traveling journalist who's done a great deal of uh, work on Syria, previously Gaza, but she's been able to focus on the conflict in Syria for a number of years now. So, Eva, thanks very much for coming on the program with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, Eva, we've got a lot to catch up on. Now, we, uh, we caught you at the beginning of uh, 2016, I think, as well. You might have been the first program to bring in that new year as well. I understand, of course, you have just come back from a visit to Syria. And uh, this isn't your first visit, is it? Uh, no, it was uh, my sixth visit. Um, I was there uh, for two months this summer in June, July, August, uh, and like for a total of two months, and then I was uh, for a total of one month in October, November in Syria for my sixth visit. Six visits. Wow. Well, that's about six times, actually more than six times as many as most of the journalists reporting on Syria. <laughs> anyone, <a> <laughs> anyone who's behind a camera, a news camera or whatnot, you know, talking about Syria or Syrian experts, you know, hardly any of them have even been there, especially in the last five years. But you've been all over. Uh, in fact, you've been to some of the conflict spots. Where, where were you in the last two trips? Uh, I actually um, spent a lot of time in Aleppo. Um, in, in the summer, I, I went to some areas I hadn't been to because there were some interesting, morbidly interesting things I wanted to address. For example, going to the Misiaf region, which is kind of near Homs and Hama, um, and visiting a village very close to the village of Akrab, where there had been a massacre in December 2012 by the so-called Free Syrian Army of over 100 Syrian civilians. Uh, so I was able to take the testimonies of some of the survivors of that massacre. And in the same region, uh, talk with another man um, who had been in Adra, which was an industrial area. Um, which uh, I, now I'm forgetting the date, but I believe it was also 2012. And uh, there was an a incredibly, uh, you know, just terribly awful massacre there. He, was, uh, he had survived the massacre. He was actually somebody who was working there, but took up arms to defend himself and his families. And his story is quite tragic because um, his family was entirely killed, as were the, the families of a couple of comrades that were fighting with him to fend off the terrorists. And I'd have to check my notes, but I think he might have been the only one to survive. Um, but, I mean, anyway, I, I wanted to hear some more of these dreadful stories because, again, they all corroborate this narrative that um, contrasts what we've been told in Western media for years. And then aside from that, um, yeah, I, just, I was in Aleppo for my third and fourth visits in November. That's absolutely incredible. But as you said, also tragic because so many of the stories you have collected are very sad. And it's a country that has seen more than its share, well over its share of suffering since 2011. And as you point out, it's also a place of contrasting narratives. And we have received a narrative um, 
from the mainstream media, the corporate media, which is that uh, the Syrian government is this immensely unpopular apparatus led by monster demon Assad, which terrorizing the population. So uh, a bunch of peaceful civilians had an uprising and it became an armed insurrection and uh, they're trying to liberate the country. But you've been to the areas that are under conflict in Aleppo. And uh, I mean, from the stories you've collected on the ground, it seems that there's... Um, not a lot of love for this opposition in, in large parts of the country. Yeah, you know, um, in other areas of Syrian prior visits, like Homs, uh, I also, you know, met with people and took their testimonies, which uh, contrasted the narrative of, of people supporting the, re the so-called rebels. And then in Aleppo, um, there are so many important things about Aleppo, it's kind of hard to get them all in in a very short time. But, um, well, the, the issue of whether people supported this phony revolution, and the answer was largely no. Yes, there were factions, but they were largely from outside of Aleppo. And then as we've seen uh, with more you know, in-depth reporting, like a lot of the so-called rebels, the, the terrorist factions that were in Aleppo were foreigners um, you know, from Chechnya or other countries. Um, and then again, the, the, the Syrian uh, terrorist rebels would have been from outside of Aleppo, not, not largely not from the city. This is what Syrians in Aleppo told me and what, um, what I think was found after the, the militant factions left and were either taken, um, con they were allowed to go to Idlib, or, or if they were Syrian, they were allowed to lay down their weapons. And this is something you and I were chatting about. You were mentioning um, militants recently laying down their weapons and actually joining the Syrian army to fight off terrorists. And this is not a new thing. This has been happening for years because along with all these false narratives, you know, there might have been Syrians that, for whatever reason, took up weapons, whether they believed it was a revolution, whether they were doing it because they were getting paid, whether they were, you know, bullied or coerced by the terrorists into doing it. Um, many of them, like it's thousands, I don't know how many thousands, might be over 10,000, might be more, um, might be less, have laid down their weapons and have taken the government amnesty. And many of these people have also um, joined in fighting the terrorism because, I think those who laid down their weapons or those who rejected this revolution saw it for what it is, and that is something that's killing their people and destroying their country. Yes, the government's reconciliation process has been credited with reducing conflicts or ending them early so as to reduce the devastation that has already swept so much of the country. Uh, it's very interesting to watch, and I heard that uh, about 1,000 or 1,200 militants had recently gone over to the government's side just the other day. So we'll keep track of those things. I'm just looking at an article you wrote at the end of November uh, in Mint Press News. Uh, it's called Aleppo, How U.S.-Saudi-Backed Rebels Target Every Syrian. What I find interesting about that is how your tour, your trip in Aleppo, is a microcosm of so many of the other reports we've had from people like Tim Anderson or Stephen Gowans and others who are looking at coverage, media coverage of the opening days of the insurrection in 2011, where... There, there's a highly sectarian character to this uprising. Um, in, in Aleppo, you had been talking to uh, various people of faith at churches and mosques, and it seems that there was this, you either were with them or against them, because if your mosque or your church was not participating in anti-government riots, you would be singled out and targeted. So it, it seems that uh, a number of people were trying to just preserve the Sunni, Shia, Christian, secular tradition they had in that country, but they were being uh, singled out for doing so. Yeah, and like you say, it is a microcosm of what's happened in Syria, you know, all over the country. This um, 
fierce uh, um, insistence to preserve their secularity. And in Aleppo, you know, it is predominantly um, uh, Muslim uh, population there, and they're 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 largely, or if not all, but no, largely, we'll say, uh, Sunni Islam in Aleppo. So, you know, the narrative we've been fed from Western media is that it's uh, Sunni rebels fighting an Alawi or whatever, you know, whatever uh, other term they want to use. Like they they often say. Sunni rebels fighting an Alawi government, Sunni rebels uh, fighting, you know, the regime. Uh, but, you know, in Aleppo, they rejected the revolution um, because they, they say it's not a revolution. That's what the, you know, overwhelming feeling in Syria is it's not a revolution. And it's, you know, it, it didn't hit Aleppo um, until around mid-2012. And, you know, the the militant factions that did take over pockets of Aleppo, areas of Aleppo, they also looted the industry there. They, you know, devastated the industry because Aleppo was the industrial hub of Syria. Yes, and there's been many accounts. large factories and took them to Turkey under, you know, Erdogan's watchful eye. As, as you said in the article, as people on the ground were saying, what, what kind of patriotic Syrians loot Syrian industry and ship it over to the Turkish border? Uh, you know, it, it's staggering because there's been many accounts, many independent accounts of this large-scale movement of Syrian industry from Aleppo uh, into Turkey, and it raises so many questions because how do you move a textile factory, actual um, machinery, large machinery used for mass production of textiles, chemicals, all sorts of things, you take that equipment, put it on flatbed trucks, and move it across the Turkish border. It's not as if the Turkish authorities don't know that's happening. So that had to be done under the watchful eye and the tacit consent uh, of the of the Turkish government. Yeah, and, you know, that's a point that an Aleppo um, Syrian MP, member of parliament, uh, Farish Shahabi made. He's also the head of the Chamber of Industry in Aleppo. You know, so he's a businessman. And he um, he made that point, you know, that Erdogan is totally complicit in it. And, of course, we can find online all sorts of YouTube videos showing these gleeful uh, terrorist rebels declaring they're taking these, sh- these factories, this equipment, over to Turkey for Saudi Arabia or Qatar or whatever. Um and uh, Shahabi, this MP, and a number of other Aleppo industrialists um, launched, uh, he called it, they launched a lawsuit against Erdogan for, for this theft and attack on, on industry in Aleppo. Um, he was also one of the first uh, prominent Syrians to be put on sanctions, or one of the first Syrians to be put on sanctions. And I think it was back, I think, uh, now I'm just going to be grabbing from my memory, but he was put on sanctions before um, rebels actually invaded Aleppo. So it kind of seems like um, it's well. It makes sense that Erdogan had his eye on Aleppo. I mean, he's he's publicly stated he wanted to take over Aleppo. That dreams failed, Sultan. But um, you know, the, and you you mentioned what kind of Syrian rebel would do that, and what kind of Syrian rebel would slaughter their people in the most heinous ways, or you know, destroy their own history and, and, and antiquities. Well, and it brings to again question the character of this so-called revolution. Um, But before we go on, I should just say, for those who are just tuning in, we're speaking with Eva Bartlett, who is uh, in Ontario, not too far away from us, and she is coming to Hamilton on January 24th and January 25th. I shall be speaking at McMaster on the 25th, I believe, and uh, it'll be the evening of the 24th and the afternoon of the 25th. We'll have details on that coming later. But uh, certainly, Eva, you've become uh, a celebrity in your own right in some respects because you have been involved in numerous debates on these very issues about Aleppo, about the nature of the uh, Syrian opposition, uh, the role of foreign governments. Uh, You've been on RT, you've been on... uh, 
other publications. I know one of those barring matches ended up having more than a million and a half hits on Facebook. I saw it myself. So what are some of the um, discussions you've been in or debates um, in, in terms of subjects and what was being discussed in these very popular video interviews? Yeah, I'd like to start out by saying, like, I really wish that instead of me, you know, in the debates, we could have had uh, Farah Shahabi or, you know, a Syrian, because uh, there's many articulate English-speaking Syrians that could do far, far more than I could in a debate, you know. But anyway, trying to represent them, trying to show their side of the story, I was pointing out um, what many other people point out, you know, that what the corporate media and Western leadership are drawing on when they, when they quote, you know, all the, these manufactured or alleged atrocities, they're drawing on the testimonies of people who have no names, unnamed activists, or they're drawing on the testimonies of people who might have names that are embedded with uh, al-Qaeda. Um, they're drawing on people like Bilal Abdul Karim, who did a lot of reports for uh, Channel 4 News, which is one of the worst propagandists out there. Um, and Bilal himself, you know, praises al-Qaeda. He praises a lot, some of these al-Qaeda leaders, and he was totally embedded with al-Qaeda. Right, that's the guy who hangs out with al-Qaeda all the time on video. Yeah. Right? He, I think he's from New York or something. Um, they're also drawing on, you know, it, it got so absurd. Like, I'm sure you're aware, and hopefully listeners are aware, but in, in the lead-up to the full liberation of Aleppo, uh, for months, like as early as April, if not earlier, Western media and human rights groups were alleging, this is one of the things that, that I got, not I wouldn't say a fight, but definitely I mentioned at the, the UN press conference, and uh, the Norwegian journalist, you know, kind of came at me like, well, how do you know this? Anyway, uh, one of the things I was mentioning was, um, you know, from uh, April, let's say April 2016, uh, much of the corporate media were, it, it seemed like they were reading from the same script, except their stories were contradicting one another. They were going on about last hospitals and last doctors. Or, you know, one day it was 10, for example, 10 last doctors, the next day it's 17 less doctors, you know, they were contradicting each other on, on numbers, but the point they were trying to convey, um, the false points they were trying to convey, was that there were no doctors in Aleppo and all the hospitals were being struck by Syrian or Russian warplanes. And that was actually one of the first things I wanted to address when I went to Aleppo in July was, okay, how many doctors are there? And that's why I went to the Aleppo Medical Association. And they said, we have, uh, what, what was the number? I said 4,160 registered and active doctors including, you know, something like 200 newly graduated and 800 specialists. So the media kept going on about last doctors in hospitals, uh, and they, in many cases, they were just manufacturing these stories or being given a script. Um, and in many cases, they were relying on the Bilal Abdul Karim's or um, Syrian Observatory for Human Rights based in the U.K. in Coventry, who himself, uh, the one man himself, <laughs> relies on unnamed activists or these, you know, clearly not impartial um, so-called activists embedded with al-Qaeda. Yes, so few of these organizations that we quote in the news as reliable sources are even in Syria to begin with, and the ones that are have been known and documented to be linked with uh, Western intelligence services, like the White Helmets, uh, linked with PR agencies and military contacts from the U.S. and the U.K. It's one of the most shameless um, campaigns of propaganda I've ever seen, especially with regard to Aleppo, and I know you and Vanessa Beely have covered that in great detail um, with the hospital situation. I remember in the summer, every week, it was the last hospital in Aleppo has been hit and destroyed by the Syrian Air Force or the Russian Air Force. So, you know, June, last hospital in Aleppo destroyed. July, last hospital in Aleppo destroyed. August, last hospital in Aleppo destroyed. And it's just a campaign to get your feelings going. Uh, oh, the last hospital in Aleppo has been destroyed. Well, actually, no. 
Uh, Aleppo has a number of hospitals. The government is operating and maintaining a number of hospitals. They have many medical professionals that are continually giving care to civilians. Um, and what uh, is being called hospitals in East Aleppo, which is the area that was occupied by al-Nusra, there were makeshift unmarked field hospitals that rebels were claiming had been hit um, uh, after the fact without having provided any notice that these buildings were hospitals, if they even were. Um, so, th you know, th there's only one entity that's providing hospitals and full-scale medical coverage throughout this entire conflict, and that's been the Syrian government. Yeah, you know, um, I'm glad you mentioned the, these unmarked uh, field hospitals because that was one of the points that I had mentioned in, in the in debates and in the, at the UN press conference. And, you know, I could have uh, phrased it better. Uh, I was wrong to say that it clearly hadn't been attacked because, I mean, you could throw a stone at it and say it's been attacked. And who knows, you know, to what degree it might have been attacked. But the point was, uh, and I will from now ever on um, cite the Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders report, in which they themselves said the Quds Hospital, this hospital in question, in the Sukhuri district, was reduced to rubble. So that's the point, you know, and this is what the, all the media were saying, uh, destroyed, reduced to rubble. So if it's reduced to rubble, then how was it months later treating so-called victims of chemical attacks? And in fact, uh, colleagues of ours, Vanessa Bili and other independents that were there, Andrew Ashtown, Jan Oberg, uh, were in East Aleppo as it was being liberated. Um, and they went to this precise area and they saw this field hospital. And, you know, from photos that she sent me, there's no big, uh, you know, the normal in, in Syria and other um, neighboring countries, you, you will see Mushfa and then the name of the hospital, um, you know, quite, quite clearly written on it. There, this from the photo that she sent, it wasn't very clearly, I couldn't see any indication that it was a hospital. But the point being, it was intact. And she said that she saw paperwork showing that it was functioning even in July 2016. So to, to what extent it could function as, you know, field hospital treating militants. Her testimonies, I really would encourage people to, to look at the testimonies she took um, on, you can find them on her Facebook page, Vanessa Bailey, 21st Century Wire. Uh, she took testimonies of people that had come out of these areas talking about how these militants, these terrorists, wouldn't allow people to have proper operations. Like if you were injured, she said in many cases, the people she spoke with, their limbs were just cut off. Um, I don't want to misquote her, so I'd rather urge people to look at her testimonies. But there are some, um, according to the words she was taking, uh, incredibly atrocious um, acts being committed by these militants. And that explains why people, one of the many reasons why people were desperate to, to leave East Aleppo or eastern areas of Aleppo occupied by militants, because their quality of life was hell. And I did meet two families when I was there in November that had managed to flee after trying twice and four times, uh, respectively, each family, uh, and being prevented by these militants. Um, and they wanted to leave because their life was hell. The militants were hoarding food. You know, they, if they wanted to buy rice or bulgur, they had to pay four times the price. They, they wanted to go to government-secured Aleppo. And so, you know, getting back to the corporate media's misrepresentation, aside from all these last hospital doctor crap stories, they, they did not acknowledge when Aleppo was liberated. They didn't acknowledge that it was liberated. They say it fell. That's, you know, that lexicon is incredibly important because in the eyes of Syrians, it was liberated. And the people that were on the streets in Aleppo were cheering and Muslims and Christians together holding Christmas celebrations as they hadn't been able to do for years, you know. So, and there's so many reasons they were cheering. 
the people in Greater Aleppo had loved ones in eastern areas of Aleppo. Um, they were in contact with them as much as possible. They were aware of the suffering. I, I interviewed other IDPs that were staying at a government-provided shelter, and they were saying, like, I've got a daughter in East Aleppo. This one woman said, I have a daughter in East Aleppo. She has uh, five kids. She can't buy milk for them. She can't provide food for them, you know. So these were the kind of stories that Syrians were living, and our media wasn't reporting. They were they were treating West Aleppo as if it didn't exist. Uh, you yes. know, Anywhere that uh, Syrians were under siege by these militants, like in West Aleppo or in other parts of the country, where they were being rocketed and where their hospitals were being hit by propane bombs and schools, that didn't show up in our media. Only these stories about the last doctor, which happened over and over and over again, you can look for yourself, uh, with regard to Aleppo. And I know there's so much more that can be said about that, and people can ask you about that when you're in Hamilton on the 24th and the 25th, because I know you have uh, access to a lot of research on Aleppo and the hospitals and the doctors. It's one of the biggest farce, farces I've uh, seen in all uh, history of war reporting. So it'll be interesting and people can, can ask you personally about that. But I want to get back to what you were saying about the liberation of Aleppo. Certainly uh, the, the lexicon, as you point out, it, using the word fall implies that uh, East Aleppo was in some high place, some, you know, some exalted place, and then it fell to the Syrian government. And, uh, and uh, you know, the Syrians aren't treating it as a fall. And you can see that overall in the country because most Syrians have fled to government-held areas. Uh, you know, when, when this insurrection happened, when ISIS took part of the country and al-Nusra took part of the country and these militants came over from Turkey, people didn't flee towards the Turkish-backed militants. They didn't flee towards ISIS. They didn't flee towards al-Nusra. They fled to the areas held by the Syrian government, which now seems to have two or three times the population that it should, like in Latakia. So, yeah. uh, you know, how, how are people feeling in Aleppo that, that you could hear from? And, and what's the mood in the country overall about the taking or retaking of cities? Well, that, that's another important, important point is that um, from, you know, friends that I have in Damascus or other areas of Syria, um, they were elated, elated that Aleppo was resecured um, because they, you know, they, they want an end to the terrorism in Syria, period. And, um, you know, I, I know Syria is not in, unique in this respect, but certainly there is this sense of, of unity and wanting, you know, the suffering of these cities, whether even if you're safe, relatively safe in Damascus, they're very aware of the suffering in Aleppo. So in, in terms of how people were reacting, they were thrilled. And, and people I know that are based in Damascus made a trip to Aleppo just to be there to celebrate, whether they were journalists or friends. Um, you know, and, and I, I want to make one quick point. So in terms of media and this distortion and using, you know, manipulating people's emotions, earlier um, in, uh, or sorry, maybe it was September, I can't remember what month, in 2016, all the media was talking about this boy named Amran who was seated in an ambulance and it looked like he had a head wound. And, you know, his face, a beautiful kid's face, was splashed over all the media and everybody was outraged and heartbroken. What can we do, this poor kid? You know, nobody actually critically thought and thought, well, why aren't they administering first aid to this kid? Why are they just sitting there snapping photos? Then it later emerged the photographer of that kid was also a guy that hung out with the, uh, the terrorists of Nuruddin Azinki, who beheaded the Palestinian boy, Abdullah Isa by cutting his head off quite methodically. Right, so the photographer um, of Amran was hanging out with the Al-Zinki gang, which had been uh, caught beheading a child, right? Oh, oh yeah, he's taken selfies with the same, the same criminals that beheaded the Abdullah. You can, we, you know, it's on his Facebook profile. People have shared his selfies uh, 
grinning with these terrorists. And so he's the photographer that took the, the photo of Amran, and I think that link is important because, um, you know, why was Amran not being treated? And just knowing who this photographer was and what other, you know, uh, roles he's had in media manipulation and who he associates with, um, I think those are important points. And at the same time, uh, you know, you were talking about areas that don't get any mention. So as Amran, who's maybe has a head wound, maybe not, we don't know, his face is being splashed across media, and nobody is talking about the villages of Fu and Kafraya, which had been in, under siege since, like, full siege since March 2015. And around that time, I don't remember the date specifically, there are two boys, Leith and Muhammad, ages four and six, I don't remember which is which. Um, they, the villages are surrounded. They're in Idlib, western Syria, and they're surrounded by terrorist factions, Ahrar al-Sham, uh, al-Nusra, I can't remember the other factions at the moment. And not only are they besieged, but the terrorists routinely uh, shell them with missiles and with the gas canister shells, the same, the same weaponry that was used on the civilians of Greater Aleppo for years, um, and also snipe at them. So around the same time as Amran, these two boys, uh, Lathan Muhammad, were shot in the neck and in the head. You know, and the guy, the kid shot in the head was in critical condition and couldn't get medical care because the hospital, there's only one hospital that's been under siege for since March 2015, so it doesn't have the things, the equipment that it needs. So here's a boy that actually really needs critical um, help, and nobody's talking about him. He, he did thankfully survive, it, miraculously, I might add. But, you know, if, if anybody wanted to talk about the suffering of Syrian children, there's so many kids you could talk about, but the media won't talk about because it doesn't fit their narrative. No, you know, as, as I think it was Philip Knightley who wrote about the fact that the first casualty of war is truth. And yeah. we are being subjected to a disinformation campaign because the United States wants to remove the government of Syria. So they're giving us the, the same kind of stories about Syria that they gave about Iraq in 2003 when they wanted to knock over Saddam. So you got the WMTs, and now, now they have uh, very one-sided human rights coverage. It's very sad because there's a conflict, a war zone, a fight between two sides, and only one side is treated like human beings. The people uh, in uh, East Aleppo that... You know, they say they're under siege, so you hear about what's happening there. You don't hear about West Aleppo. You don't hear about much of the country, and you don't hear from the people there, actually. You just hear from secondhand accounts and Twitter feeds. Um, so people are playing on our humanitarian instincts. We want to see an end to the suffering in Syria. And the, one of the ways that's being achieved now is by government victory in major areas, and that seems to be a way to to end this conflict, um, and, I, and I know there's hiccups along the way, and you know, we're, we're almost out of time, but uh, I know you've been keeping up to, to date on all the details of the conflict, and uh, now that Aleppo is mostly over, uh, the focus has shifted to other areas, including Damascus. I understand that these, uh, <laughs> these democratic, freedom-loving rebels tried to poison Damascus's water supply. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I, all the specific details I, I can't say, but I know for the past, I think it's three weeks now, um, Damascus has been without water because I believe the sequence of events was terrorists, including al-Nusra. Um, there's a photo that's been shared on Facebook, and it was taken from the Facebook page of this particular terrorist of al-Nusra standing on uh, destroyed infrastructure related to the water in an area, Wadi, Barada or something, outside of Damascus. Anyway, I believe the sequence of events was they poisoned the water, and then they it somehow damaged or destroyed uh, some, some water infrastructure, leaving um, the UN saying 4 million. And this is just a kind of um, 
uh, somber aside, but the UN always inflates numbers when it serves the NATO agenda advantage. They deflate numbers uh, when it doesn't serve. So they're saying 4 million. Other sources are saying 5 million people in Damascus without water for three weeks now, uh, thanks to these terrorists. And um, another point about the UN, when it's an alleged crime of the Syrians or the Russians, the UN is outraged, you know, again, to do with lexicon. When it's something the terrorists or their you know, non-existent moderates have done, the UN expresses concern. You know, these are really important. It has a different impact on the psyche, you know, when you're reading or hearing these reports. Yes, concern as recently, if there are, um, yeah, there are favored children and they're just making some mistakes. Precisely, and that's how Nuruddin Azinki terrorists were treated. That literally, Western leaders kind of, kind of shrugged and said, oh, well, you know, these things kind of happen. They behead children. Um, and yet they're not going to be designated as terrorists. And, uh, you know, on that note, like, I, I do call them all terrorists, even though if you want to be precise, you can say militant factions or mercenaries, paid mercenaries, uh, non-Syrian mercenaries. But if you go to Syria, you, if you spend some time, say, in Aleppo or any of these areas where they've been suffering, or God, you know, if you're able to go to, I'd love to go to Fu and Kafaya because their suffering is so immense. And to, to hear, or to, to sense what they're actually living I mean, that needs to be conveyed. I've interviewed people from there, um, and they've told me horror stories, but, you know, they would never call um, these terrorists as rebels. And yet our media insists on calling them rebels, again, always with that um, quote-unquote moderate in front of them. And this, again, has an effect on the psyche of, of people who are not so well-informed and thinking, well, what's the big fuss about? Why is the government, you know, targeting rebels? Well, well they're not. They're, they're fighting very strategic war against terrorists. And this is a war against terrorists that the Syrian people, you know, I, I've seen so many um, older Syrian soldiers. These would be men that have done their conscription ser- service years ago and came back to defend their country. And also in, in places like Malula, which is um, an ancient Christian pl- village that I, I visited twice, uh, there, are, there are people that were not in the army, or maybe they did their service, but anyway, some of the defenders of the village, like 40 or 50 who largely weren't credited for the liberation of Malula. They were just locals that took up arms to defend themselves, and they knew the back streets, and they weathered the cold, and they lived a very hard existence, and they were part of the reason, a very big part of the reason that Malula was liberated, also, you know, Hezbollah and the Syrian army. But these are all people that are defending their heritage and their futures, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, the people of Syria... Aleppo, Damascus, Homs, they've endured and fought and struggled for six years. It hasn't been celebrated uh, by the CBC or by CNN, but you've been there. You've been on the ground talking to Syrians, uh, and you've seen what their hopes are, what their aspirations are. Is, you know, I guess as we end this interview, um, what do you think is the outlook of Syrians that you've talked to f- for the near future? I, I mean, I think they're pragmatic. Um, I think they're aware that the West is not, although Aleppo was a massive victory and a massive blow to this NATO alliance, Turkish-Israeli plot against Syria, I think that many are aware that, you know, this alliance is not going to give up their attempts to destroy the country if they can't, you know, if the NATO alliance and Israel and Turkey cannot uh, impose a new puppet government as was their desire to control the country, they, I think um, they still want to damage as much as possible and, and you know, devastate the infrastructure. And I, I believe that Syrians are aware of this. And, 
you know, what a what an awful feeling to be warred upon to to lose your loved ones in the most gruesome ways. Um, to be now not able to financially survive because your economy's been devastated and because of the criminal sanctions, and um, at the same time be aware of how much the media is lying. I mean, Aleppo was such a um, momentous victory for the Syrian people, not just the people of Aleppo. And our media did not recognize that victory, and you were, you were definitely hitting on that. You know, We have consistently, our media has consistently uh, ignored that the great sacrifices of Syrians, whether they're in the Syrian army or local allies, their regional allies as well, um, or whether they're people that are sacrificing simply by staying and refusing to flee. You know, I think that they are some of the most, uh, nobody, it's not a perfect country, but what I want to say is they are some of the most resilient and brave people enduring this onslaught of terrorism and, and media terrorism. And they have my full respect, and the Syrian government has my full respect too, because for one thing, um, they have made every effort to end this war and to, to lessen, to stop the bloodshed. And it's been us, it's been the West and our allies that keep, um, keep the war going. And the other thing, as you were saying, you know, without, they've, they've implemented since at least 2012, um, the reconciliation processes have been ongoing. And in 2014, the reconciliation, actually I'm not sure about that date, but the reconciliation ministry was established. Uh, to allow people to lay down their arms and return to their normal um, civilian lives. And, you know, I really find it hard to imagine another situation, for example, in America or even Canada, wherein our governments would pardon terrorists who had taken up weapons against not only civilians but against the security state of our governments, right, and against our establishments and against our you know, exactly as the so-called rebels have done, I find it extremely um, hard to believe that our governments would ever say, okay, we're going to establish a ministry to enable these people to say, I'm sorry, and, and go back to their life. No way in hell. They'd be locked up. And, you know, as for the militant factions that were in East Aleppo or in other areas of Syria, Daraya, for example, um, to allow them to guarantee them safe passage to Idlib instead of just killing them on the spot or, or locking them up. I, again, cannot imagine that scenario occurring in North America or most Western nations. So, you know, the Syrian government um, is not perfect, like any government is not perfect, but, you know, I have so much more respect for the leadership of the Syrian government um, than I do of, of most nations. Yeah, you and, know, you know, it echoes the respect the Syrian people have. It just reminds me of what a former U.K. ambassador, I think it was ambassador to Syria, had said recently at the uh, New Year, which was that there's such enormous cognitive dissonance he's experiencing on Syria because what is happening on the ground in places like Aleppo is so different from the way the media is reporting on it. And there's no genocide, there's no massacre. He says it's, it's almost unheard of that a government would provide buses to give safe passage yeah. for the forces that it's opposing it to flee uh, unharmed from the city. But that's what the Syrian government did. That's yep. what's happening on the ground. There's a reconciliation process. There's uh, the exposing of the white helmets. These are things that we wouldn't know about if it wasn't for the efforts of you and Vanessa Beely. And now people can look these things up on the internet. And I, and I think, in fact, that Morning Star had a, had a cartoon of you and, and Vanessa. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's a bit embarrassing. I, I understand that the uh, the the artist who did the cartoon was simply trying to pay his respects. But, I mean, there's so many amazing Syrian journalists and, you know, even non-Syrians that have been working so hard uh, to also articulate the truth. 
but especially the Syrian and regional journalists on the ground who are risking their lives on a daily basis. You know, it's it's embarrassing. I I I, I get what he was trying to point out that you know maybe in a sense the media lies are, are coming being punctured. Um, but I I fully just want to respect the journalists who, especially the martyred Syrian journalists, you know, who gave their lives telling the truth. Um, yeah. And, you know, I just want to make one point quickly about the white helmet. So recently, Anna News um, came out with a documentary on the white helmet. It's fascinating because Anna News was in eastern areas of Aleppo that had been occupied, including at the the base that was supposed to be the headquarters of the white helmets, and that was featured apparently in some Al Jazeera documentary. And so they have footage of the same, you know, showing the same areas that uh, I didn't see the Al Jazeera uh, documentary, but they, this, this Anna News has footage of these areas, and you can see quite clearly the ties between the White Helmets and um, um, extreme so-called Islamists, but we, we know they're just mercenaries like Al-Nusra, Al-Qaeda. Um, and also, they even include the testimony of a former White Helmets uh, volunteer who basically says, I joined because I wanted to do something good from, I'm paraphrasing, to do something good for my community. Um, at some point, they started telling me um, I needed to act in scenes, and, uh, you know, I asked, why do I need to act? And they said, because we won't get our money from uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey and whomever else. And he repeated that a couple of times in his testimony, saying others started saying, like, why do we need to act? And they said, it's all about money. You know, we need to, to produce these things to get our money. So if that, along with Vanessa and, and Rick Sterling and other people's research into the White Helmets um, and their million-dollar-plus funding and their alliance with al-Qaeda and all the crazy um, very staged-looking uh, videos that they produce, if that's not evidence enough of media manipulation, I can't imagine, you know, what does it take for people to realize um, that the media, as uh, somebody who interviewed me um, said, I mean, I always say the media is lying to you on Syria, but what does it take for people to, to finally realize that, you know? It, it, it boggles my mind. Well, I'll um, tell you what, I think that the liberation of Aleppo is removing a lot of the fog, because prior to that, there is that narrative that all the Syrians hate their government. Uh, the government's going to collapse any time now. It's going to lose. And then the government takes what may be one of the most important cities in the whole war, and people were overwhelmingly pleased about that. And so where's the popular rebellion? Where's, you know, and where's the, the white helmets? They were, seem to be as non-existent as the Aleppo hospitals were for ordinary Syrians. You know, there's a propaganda facade uh, called the white helmets and various hospitals, but they were nowhere to be seen if you're an ordinary Syrian. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, uh, on my visits to Aleppo, I would ask people uh, whether they were at the doctors and hospitals or at the medical association or civilians that had loved ones in eastern areas of Aleppo. And nobody had ever heard of this White Helmets group. Um, Vanessa, when she was on the ground, did meet some people that had encountered. So apparently they'd encountered, they also go by the name Syrian Civil Defense, um, which is stolen from the actual Syrian Civil Defense, who are actually volunteers. And uh, their whole story, they, are, they actually are heroes. But that's the thing, the White Helmets has um, impostered and taken this identity um, as Syrian Civil Defense. And Vanessa was taking the testimonies of people who were saying, that they, um, like, I don't want to misquote her, but anyway, they were not uh, treated well by the so-called Syrian civil defense. And again, this guy's testimony saying we were acting, and he even said that, you know, children uh, were wearing paint or makeup. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. Um, just the level of duplicity is phenomenal. 
it is phenomenal, but it's also given us the opportunity to see how much we are lied to and to give profile to people that are exposing this. So if people want to look up your many articles and interviews on this subject, and again, Aleppo, Syria, white helmets, uh, shelling of uh, government-held areas, um, hospitals, all sorts of stories, um, what blogs and and what uh, aggregations can people go to to find your coverage of this? Well, I, I write for a lot of um, independent media, including 21st Century Wire, Dissident Voice, uh, SOTT.net, um, Strategic Culture Foundation. And then I try my best to put um, my articles onto my blog, which I need to revamp. But for the moment, it's in gaza.wordpress.com. And then uh, forward slash Syria, you could find links to you know articles I've written, but also... Um, I, I really tried to upload a number of short video clips, and I'm, I have to add to it from my recent uh, time in Syria. But um, clips of Syrians speaking their truth, you know, speaking their uh, what their their reality. So you can find that at that link as well. Well, Eva, thanks so much. I know um, people are going to have the opportunity to ask you about this uh, on the 24th and on the 25th in Hamilton, so I'll give the details after the interview. But I wanted to thank you. I know you're busy giving interviews even today, even this evening as we speak. So um, uh, thanks for taking the time, and we'll make sure that your upcoming talk gets uh, covered and promoted heavily so people in Hamilton can have the opportunity to hear from an Ontario journalist who's very recently been to Aleppo and, and been throughout Syria. So thanks so much for appearing today on the program with us. That's wonderful. Thank you very much.